We're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. I'm going to preach fast today because I'd like to get through the sermon and uh, communion in uh, a reasonable amount of time. Um, if you're joining us for the first time in a while, or for the first time maybe ever, um, it might feel like uh, you've walked into the middle of a movie because we've been going through the book of Hebrews and we've gotten to the middle of Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10 verse 18 was sort of the end of the teaching part of Hebrews, the doctrinal part of Hebrews. And so now we're beginning, now that he's laid out this huge argument, which in very quick summary basically says, Jesus is God and he's superior to everything that has come before. He is the culmination of all things. And then in verse 19, it begins today, therefore. So because Jesus is so far above everything that has ever come before, now he gives us, this is how you folks need to conduct yourselves. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's read Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to begin in verse 19 and read to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, there it is. I've laid out how Jesus is better. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us your word. We're so grateful for it. We, we are so thankful that it is true. We don't have to uh, doubt it. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to filter it. We just have to trust it. Help us to see it correctly this morning by your spirit, to understand it um, in the way that, that you intended for us to understand it. And we pray this morning, if there's any that are here, maybe for the first time uh, in Hebrews, that they would... Um, be able to glean something solidly true from your word, that, that they wouldn't feel like they were floating about, um, not understanding what's going on, but they would be secured in the truth of your word that is presented even in part this morning. So we thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first part of the passage that we read, in summary, is... Knowing Jesus has opened the way, let us draw near to God. Access is given to us for a bold approach to God. And the point is simple. We must take advantage of this access and take it with boldness. On the Day of Atonement, remember way back in the Old Testament system, the high priest entered the holiest place of all with fear and trembling. 
but we can enter the holiness, or the holiest, with boldness. This, this is not, by the way, boldness that looks like arrogance or haughtiness. Sometimes we can confuse that, and I don't want us to trip up on that word. So this isn't an arrogance or a haughtiness or an I deserve to be here type of boldness. The Greek word here is paresia, paresia. It literally means all speech and could be freedom to speak plainly. In the military, sometimes an underling, maybe a private, wants to communicate something of importance without having to obey all the rules and regulations that are in the military as to how you can speak to someone who is your uh, superior. So there's all sorts of protocol and sometimes the underling will, will um, want to say something that they just think can't be said under all those rules. And so when that happens, they will say something like, Sir, permission to speak freely, sir. And that's what this is like. God has given us permission to speak freely to him because of the sacrifice of Jesus. For the very first time in history, we can enter the very presence of God and tell him what is on our hearts. And he hears us because of what Jesus did. If we entered the holiest as the Old Testament high priest did with the blood of animals, we could not have this freedom. We could not have this boldness. But with the blood of Jesus providing a new and living way which he consecrated or dedicated for us, we really can come into the presence of God with that kind of boldness. What is on your heart today? You can bring it to God because Jesus has made access to the Father open. The sacrifice of Jesus is always fresh in the mind of God. Though it happened centuries ago, 20 centuries ago about, it is not stale. It says that we have a living way. It means that a living Jesus ushers us into the presence of God. It says that we are sprinkled and old coagulated blood cannot be sprinkled. It is a new way because it is a new covenant. It is a living way because it is a living high priest that provided the way, not a dead animal. Remember, some of you uh, will remember, some of you will know this from, from your own reading or just from general knowledge. We talked about the tabernacle that was in the wilderness and there was a curtain that divided the inside of the tabernacle into two parts. The part where the regular priests could go into and the part where only the high priest could go in once a year. And that curtain was called the veil and the veil separated the, holy, the holiest from the holy place. To enter the holiest, you had to pass through the veil. But this veil separating man from God's intimate presence is forever open, being torn in two from the top to the bottom. Aren't you glad this morning that God didn't just tear a tiny hole in the veil so that we could just peek inside? Aren't you glad that he didn't tear a medium-sized hole in the veil? 
so that we would have to labor and worm our way in through that tiny little hole? He completely tore the veil from top to bottom. The writer to the Hebrews makes an analogy between the veil that stood between God and man and the body of Jesus. Jesus' body was torn and so was the veil, each indicating that now we have access to the very presence of God. In a few minutes, we're going to be, we're going to, uh, be remembering the tearing of Christ's body in our communion service. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle with its skins and veil covered the glory of God and made it inaccessible to mankind. In the same way, the glory of God was hidden in the body of Christ until the veil was torn open to reveal the presence of God and make him accessible to all who would come. Christ's resurrected body was a glorious body. We have a high priest now who presides over the house of God. That's an interesting phrase, the house of God. Um, just doing some reading as to finding out what's the prevailing idea. What is this house of God? And, and there's three main opinions, and it's divided pretty equally among theologians about these three things. Uh, some say that it is heaven. The house of God is heaven. Some say that it is the church, and I don't mean a building, I mean all of the believers in Jesus. That's the house of God. And others say that it's the individual believer's body that is the house of God. Maybe it's all three, but it's the house of God. And Jesus is the high priest that presides over it. With the perfect cleansing available to us, cleansing both the inner and the outer man, we can draw near to God in a way never available under the old covenant. The inner man, you'll see here, it talks about your conscience being sprinkled and your body being washed. The inner man and the outer man are inextricably linked in this life. The purifying work that Christ's sacrifice does on the inside immediately leads to a purifying on the outside as well. The work of Jesus makes, it, makes us able to draw near to God in full assurance of faith because of cleanliness. We can draw near because Jesus settled all of the separation issues. We had separation issues between man and God. They were sin. There was a whole lot of things that separated us, a whole lot of sin that separated us from the presence of God. And Christ in his sacrifice dealt with those separation issues. The problem of access to God has been settled by Christ. The problem of a perfect high priest has been settled by Christ. The problem of moral and spiritual filth has been settled by Christ. Notice that he encourages us to draw near. Why would he do that? The encouragement to draw near wouldn't be given unless it was necessary. 
our natural inclination is to draw away from God as sinful people. If our natural inclination was always to draw towards God and draw towards God, the writer wouldn't have to encourage us to do that. He says, look, you guys, I know that your natural inclination is to shrink away and move away bit by bit from this God, but don't do it. Draw near to God because of what Jesus did. These people that originally received the letter to the Hebrews, they, they probably thought they had many problems. Persecution was one of them. Difficult relationships between family members was another. Hard times with culture or economy. Things were rough in that part of the world. But the real problem was that their relationship with God wasn't on track. They didn't draw near to God on the basis of what Jesus had done on the cross. Through the empty tomb and in heaven praying for you regularly. So we too, when we are in tough times, we should remember that many Christians have gone through worse times and have had a better attitude and more joy than we do now. One key difference is that they chose in the tough times to draw near to God in Christ. Just as importantly, the original readers of this letter are reminded that they will never regain that intimacy coming through the institutions of the Old Covenant. So they had encountered the Messiah in some way, whether they had fully placed their trust in him or not depended on the individual, but they had encountered the Messiah that God had been promising for thousands of years, and now some of them were thinking, I need to go back to the lighting of the candles. I need to go back to the sacrificing of the animals. I need to go back to the rules and the regulations because all of this is new and I, and I, it's just, I, I just can't wrap my, my thinking around it or I just can't trust it. And we do that too. We want to go back to the rules that we grew up with. We want to go back to the, things they, the way things were before. We want to go back. And the key is for the Christian, we need to move forward and draw near to the presence of God. It's really interesting. In Jewish culture, a lot of the time they spent looking back. They looked back at creation for the roots of the Sabbath. They looked back at the Exodus for um, a story of how God was going to deliver them. They looked back at the prophets to find out that disobedience leads to punishment. They looked back, they looked back, they looked back. And they still do that today. And then Christ comes along with a new and living way and says, not back, forward now. Forward with me now, draw near to God. The next idea in the passage, the next main idea is, let us hold fast to the truth. I, I can't begin to overemphasize. I, there's no way I'm going to be able to overemphasize the idea of holding fast to the truth. So these poor folks, like many of us, discouragement made them waver from the truth, as it so easily can. A renewed confidence in the greatness of Jesus, which was the purpose of the letter, and the new covenant will 
help them to stand strong in the faith. In the passage we read in verse 23, the King James Bible uses the word faith there. Let us hold fast to the confession of our faith, which is interesting that they chose that because the word that they translated faith is used 54 times in the New Testament. 53 times it's translated hope. And this one time they decided that they wanted to translate it faith. I think hope is the better translation in this case. That is the way that word is always translated. Confession of our hope. The assurance of our faith causes us to look forward in hope. Without this assurance, we will always find ourselves looking backward at our failings. The assurance of the believer is so important to the growth of the believer. To know that you are God's in Christ gives you the liberty now to move forward with him. If you are always doubting, am I his? Am I a Christian? Am I on my way to heaven? Am I born again? Do I have the spirit within me? If you are living with those questions, you can only ever look back. And the writer here is saying that is not what the Christian life is about. I always think of Paul. What does Paul say in total contradiction to his culture? Forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things which are ahead. What gives us this assurance? Now, unless some of you are miracle Christians, and maybe if you are, you should come up here and preach. I always give the invitation for those of you that are perfect to go ahead and make your way up here. No volunteers? Steve? No? No, he's just smiling. He's had enough preaching for a while. Um, what gives us this assurance? If you're anything like me, you've had times, even after you were a Christian, where something happened or you failed in some way or something went wrong enough that you began to have doubts. Maybe not you. That's me for sure. Maybe that lessens who I am in your eyes. That's okay because it's the truth. Let us hold fast to the truth. There has been times, and I remember one in particular, I won't go into it right now, where all of a sudden it's like, God, are you actually there? Are you out there? So what gives us this assurance where we know that God is there and that he sent his son to die for us and that he rose again and he's living in heaven? What gives us this assurance? Obedience in the inner man. Obedience that flows out of the inner man to the outer man. When we trust and obey, we are filled with hope. When we trust and obey, we are filled with hope. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. So if you want to be wishy-washy about your faith, if you want to experience deep doubt, and if you want to be looking backward at your failings, don't trust and don't obey. That's your formula that'll work every time. 
Now, I'm not saying that when you have doubts, it's, it's always because of that. Sometimes we just have doubts. It's part of being a human person. We just do. But the way we overcome those doubts is little by little, I trust in the inner man, and that causes obedience to the outer man. I trust and obey. I trust and I obey. The reason we can stand strong is because he who promised is faithful. Can you begin to imagine that your assurance was based on your faithfulness, what it would do to your assurance? I am assured of my faith because I am such a good person. I am assured of my faith because I always live in faith. I am assured of my salvation because me, me, me. Can you imagine how weak that kind of assurance would be? Our assurance isn't based on that. The passage says that our assurance is based on the fact that he is faithful. Your assurance is as good as the faithfulness of God. So what does this all lead to? The final point. And I don't want to belabor this point, but there's no way we can avoid it because there it is in the scripture. And that is, now that this is our experience as believers in Christ, let us pursue the community of God's people. So these poor folks that received the letters, many, uh, this letter uh, called Hebrews, um, many of them were discouraged. And that, is, that discouragement made them avoid community, <clears throat> Christian community, at the very time they needed it the most. Forsaking fellowship is a sure way to give place to discouragement. God designed human beings and the church in such a way that we need this and things like this. This festers, this discouragement festers where God's people are not exhorting one another. And we'll talk about what that looks like in a bit. Our passage says, let us consider one another. When we look at that word consider, we could even translate it, let us really consider one another. So it's the word consider with, with an addition to the front of the word. It means let us really deeply consider one another. It's not like, nah, I considered going to the store, but I decided not to. No, this is really considering one another. It goes on to say to stir up love and good works. The King James uses a wonderful word there, to provoke love. You've seen any of you that have children. And, and if you have a brother and a sister, they have this ability to provoke that's uncanny. That little boy can just look at the little girl right, and it provokes her to anger. He just has to look at her right. Mom... So-and-so is looking at me like that again, and they, they know how to provoke. That's what this is. We provoke one another to love and good works. Did you know how many times this word, one another, occurs in the New Testament? The idea of 
It's about community. It's about each believer interacting with other believers. 10, 20, 50, you'd be wrong. 70 times. In the New Testament, the phrase one another is used 70 times. Things that we ought to do as believers for one another. This word provoke here is used in one other place only in the New Testament. I want to look at it because it's very enlightening. Acts chapter 15. It should come up here. Acts chapter 15 beginning in verse 36. There it is. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And here's the word. Then the contention became so sharp. That's one word, same word. To provoke love and good works is exactly this. Contention becoming sharp. The contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. So this word here is used here that divided people. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, this is the same type of reaction that you need to use to unite, to, to unite with one another. It's, an, it's really considering some other believer so that you are able to stir up or provoke love and good works in that person. In other words, you have to do something. This is not talking about a top-down ministry. The pastor is provoking me to anger. The pastor is, needs to do this. The pastor needs to do that. Nuh-uh. One another. One another. This is a horizontal ministry. Look briefly with me also at Romans chapter 12, and that should come up as well, verses 6 through 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I have a sense here that when Paul is writing this, he could have kept going and said, what's your gift? What is it that you do? What is it that God has given to you that you are able to do? Do that and do it well and do it fully. So he stops his list because he lists a few things that might be common to many people, but maybe your thing isn't on this list, like helping, like serving. But it says you need to do it. There is something you can do. Maybe you've been in a situation where you have some person that you know that does nothing but find fault find weakness, find
find failure. When they approached you with those words of encouragement, let's call them what they are, discouragement, or that letter of criticism, what did it do to provoke you to love and good works? You all know the answer, nothing. It might have provoked you to other things, but love and good works were not them. It can't. It is contrary to everything that the New Testament has taught us in how to deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, there are some exceptions. When it comes to trying to help another person see and overcome some sin in their life. But that wasn't the issue when you were torn down, was it? It wasn't a sin issue when that person encouraged you. The reason you were torn down is because you weren't living up to that person's preferences. And if this is happening in this congregation, it needs to be rooted out. In tennis, you've seen tennis. In tennis, there's a judge who sits way up on a high chair. And when one player hits the ball out of the court, the judge quickly yells, Fault! Right away. Fault! And the judge has earned the right to be in that chair. He knows the rules. He's been tested and trained, and he knows exactly how the game works. And so he has earned the right to be in that chair. He knows how to make quick and accurate judgments according to the rules of the game. But most of the time, that person that watches you and yells, Fault! has no right to sit in that chair. Let us stir up one another to love and good works. People need encouragement like crops need rain. People need encouragement like crops need rain. I was reading this week very briefly about a person, uh, it was an, an older person that, that was getting their very first cell phone. And, and they were thinking right away, a godly person, how can I use this for ministry? And what they did is as they prayed for people, they would send them a text. I am praying for you. Hold fast. Here's a scripture verse. And that's what they did. They couldn't get out. They were, they were sort of bound up. But they could do that thing where they could encourage the other person. So a ministry based on something that simple. And you've all had times, haven't you, where you've said, do you know what? I should encourage that person. Or I should encourage this person. Somehow or in some way. And then it slipped your mind and it never happened. Let me tell you, that person needed encouragement like a crop needs rain. Do you think it was by whim that that person came into your mind? Or could possibly it have been the Holy Spirit prompting you as the Holy Spirit sees that person suffering and prompting you to somehow lift them up a little bit? Maybe that's what it was. People need encouragement, folks. Let us encourage one another. We need that in this body if we're going to grow. It's not an, it's not, this is not an optional thing. If we cease encouraging one another, 
this will dwindle into dust. Be encouraged by me right now to encourage one another. Many go to church if they need it at the time. But our motivation for fellowship with other believers must be to obey God and to give to others. How many times have you heard someone say something like, I went to church, but I didn't get anything out of the service, so I, did, I didn't go back there. I didn't get anything out of it. Well, what did you try giving? If everybody's getting, who's doing the giving? You can say, well, God is. Well, yeah, but he's asked you to do it. God has said he will provide in many ways through the hands and the feet of his people. We don't go to church to get something out of it. We go because we need to give something into it. Newell says, Christian exhortation means the expression of our hearts to others to urge them to continue on in the Christian path. It's a lifting up, not a tearing down. There are those that get that wrong. As the day of Jesus' return draws nearer, we should be more committed to the fellowship of God's people, the assembling of ourselves together. As things get more and more difficult in a world that is increasingly hostile toward the Christian faith, God's design, and I use those words on purpose, God's design is that these trials drive us together. If it drives us from one another, it is not of God. Maybe that's not your problem. Maybe it's not trials and difficulties. Maybe in today's society, maybe it's because things are getting easier and easier for you. Why would I have to rely on a body of believers like this when I have an RV and life insurance? Wait until you get cancer. Wait until something goes wrong that your RV and life insurance don't do anything for. Wait until you lose someone you love a great deal. And then go read your life insurance policy so that it lifts you up. And you will find that it doesn't do anything. But maybe things are getting easier and easier for you. You don't sense that compelling need to be with other Christians. The words of the Bible still stand. Not forsaking, which is a command word, by the way, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Folks, it happens. It happens, and it happens easily. And God's word says, don't let it happen to you. You go to church with the attitude, what can I bring and what can I give? As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. Did you catch that? When you forsake the assembling of yourself with other believers, you are tearing them down. And you are tearing yourself down. It's implied in that verse. I'll let you read it more carefully. It's saying when you get together 
that lifts you up. So the failure to do that tears us down. Folks, we need to, and I'm not just talking about Sunday morning church. I'm talking about getting together with fellow believers regularly so that we can provoke one another to love and good works and build one another up. Let's pray.